Can anybody tell me what this is? That is a lightning bug, a firefly, which is also a type of beetle. Very good. Yes, it's a lightning bug or a firefly. They light up the sky, right, in the summertime. In fact, we just, Heather just saw one the other, last night. She's like, because I haven't seen him in weeks, right? And she's, I'm like, he's late. But anyways, so fireflies, that is actually the eastern firefly. It's a uh, Latin term is the photinus, Fote being light, right? So it's a light bug, right? We all get that. It's the most common species of firefly in the United States. In fact, there are several species, but this one, the eastern firefly, is by far the most prevalent, the most numerous. This firefly, the way, the reason they flash, they blink their abdomens is for what? Is to mate. It's a mating call, right? So the guy flies around and he blinks. And then a girl firefly sees him blinking and goes and blinks back, right? You could call it flirting. Every species does it, right? Human beings do it too. Every species on the planet does it. Sometimes it's, it's a visible expression. Sometimes it's just a sound. Birds do a lot of that. Peacocks spread their feathers and go, hey, look at me, right? There are lots of different ways they use to connect with each other, to interact with each other. The photinus, the lightning bug, uses light. Now, what's this next one? That is also a lightning bug. That is not a photinus, that is a photurus. I know. Huh? Not really potato, potato. And here's why. The photurus is not able to mate with a photinus, but photurus females have been known when they see the male blinking, they have been known to mimic the response of the female photinus. So the photurus has been known to mimic it in order to draw in the male so she can kill him and eat him. Nice. Why is a male saying nice? I feel like that's just a bad response, okay? It seems nondescript, right? If you put them side by side, right? They look pretty similar. I mean, the light angles are different. There's some difference in the stripes, but you really don't know that they're different until you're right on top of them. If you were standing out in your yard watching lightning bugs blink, would you know which one was which? You would not. And the truth is, the male photinus doesn't either. He doesn't know which one is which. All he knows is the blinking. It's mimicking something he is called to go find, right? And it triggers his basic instincts, and so he flies right over to it, and she says, hey, how you doing? Lunch. Right? This is a, a form of adaptation called mimicry, one species taking on the traits of another to gain an advantage, maybe in an appearance or behavior or a sound or scent. Whatever it is, they do it to gain an advantage. There are generally two types of mimicry. There, there are lots of subtypes, but there's generally two. The first one is for protection. A good example would be the, these two different snakes. Can you show the snakes? 
Okay. One is a red milk snake. One is a coral snake. One, if it bit you, would probably hurt. One, if it bit you, would, would put you in the hospital. Which one's which? The one on the top is coral. Any other guesses? You got a 50-50 shot. Too bad Mikhail was wrong. The bottom one's the coral. He was. Sometimes that's half the battle. You just, yeah, it's, it's the top one. I know it. No, it's not. It's the bottom one. But the point would be that the top one mimics the bottom one because it's hoping that a predator, will, when it goes by, will go, oh, I don't want none of that. Right? I don't want that snake. So it does it for protection and it keeps going. Then you've got the other version of mimicry. Check out this bug. Any idea what this is? Not a sticky bug. Do we have any ornithologists in here? Okay, that is what's called, and this is appropriate, an assassin bug. And what the assassin bug does is the assassin bug flies and or lands right next to a spider web. And then it taps on the spider web so that the spider thinks that there's prey caught in its web. And it waits for the spider to come over and get its prey, and then the assassin bug says, lunch. Tricky little bugger, isn't it? But he's pretending to be the thing that the spider wants. Then there's this one, if you've ever seen Finding Nemo. Right? If you've ever seen Finding Nemo, this is a real copied off, obviously it's a cartoon, but it's copied off a real fish called an angler fish. And the way the angler fish works is it dangles this little thing that looks like what is commonly eaten as food for fish at that depth. And since it's dark and it's deep where they are, where they live, they can't see it until they're close enough that I got you. I lured you in and I got you. This form of mimicry, again, is, is common, but this, this type of aggressive mimicry where you're trying to lure something in, you're trying to tempt their prey, and here's the part that I think is craziest. They're tempting their prey to use their own energy, their own basic instincts to chase after the thing that will get them killed. They trick it into using its own energy. They don't have to chase. It's not like a lion chasing its prey. They just sit tight and they trick it. So, which brings us to our series, Game Over. The, the series, the point, the goal of the series, or the, the, the primary concern of the series, I should say, is a three-letter word that has a tendency to tempt us into chasing things that we that will kill us anyways, but we do it. Any idea what that three-letter word is? Sin. sin. Some people say excitedly. Some people say, you've got to be kidding me. Anyone who says sin excitedly, I worry about. Sin! Really? Huh? I'm worrying about myself. Oh, from the mouths of babes, right? But 
That's what, the, that's what sin does. Sin tempts us to chase something, maybe a feeling or a status or even a goal, by mimicking something that actually is good. But one of the hard things for us to handle about sin sometimes is this, is that sin is one of our basic instincts. The predator that we just talked about, this aggressive mimicry, they don't do anything except use their own instincts against them. They use their prey's own instincts to mate or to feed or whatever. They use it against them. They were already there. They were already ingrained within them. Sin, too, is also ingrained within us. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to talk about that. But the truth is, it is. Ever since the fall, it has been. In fact, Jesus says very, very clearly in Mark chapter 7, verse 15, he says it's, it's not what goes into a person from the outside that defiles him. It's the things that come out of a person that are what defile him. There's a, a source within us that gets ourself into trouble. And that thing is, is a basic nature that is busted. It is broken. We have a tendency to think and do things that we probably shouldn't because at the end of the day, they are sinful. I don't even like saying the word. Do you like saying the word? Nobody does. But it doesn't change it from being true. So this series, this Game Over series, this three-week series explores the Bible's command to die to ourselves. If you remember, we just finished up a series called Are You Willing? And the last one we did, if you can intermingle it with some of the other stories that we heard this summer, the last one we did was on Are You Willing to Sacrifice? Are You Willing to Lose Your Life in Order, order to Save It? But we kind of left it with Are You Willing? And we didn't say, okay, if you are, what do you do with that? And so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about what to do with this problem that every one of us has, that none of us likes to talk about. But the truth is, in order to find life in Jesus Christ is critical for us to deal with. And that is the issue of sin. I had some people saying this morning, oh, you're finally going to talk this week? That's great. I'm like, you might not want that after you hear what I'm going to say. So, we're trying to figure out where grace fits in this process because, thank God, we have a God that is filled with grace and mercy to help us handle those difficulties, knowing this is part of our basic instinct and we're going to mess up. How do we respond in the midst of temptation and understanding that dealing with it requires us to hit the game over button, to say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to allow for it. I'm not going to let it be here in my life because at the end of the day, I can't control it. And that's the part we like to believe we can. We like to think we can control it when the truth is we cannot by ourselves. To do that today, we're going to look at two different scriptures. We're going to look at James chapter 1, which is our primary scripture, verses 12 through 18. We're also going to spend some time in Matthew 4, 1 through 4, but mostly we're going to spend some time in James, trying to determine what James says about sin, what James says about the trials and the difficulties of it, the temptations that come from it that get us to chase the thing that will kill us, and then ultimately some of the things he suggests for dealing with it. For dealing with it. 
So let's look at that. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, if you'll follow along with me. I'm in the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil. He himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. But by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If you look at verse 12, the, first, the word that first sticks out to me is the word trials. It says, if you endure trials... If you're reading the rest of the book of James, many of the trials that they're enduring are internal. This is not an external trial. Are there some external trials that James talks about? Absolutely. The challenges of the world around you, the challenges of, of things that, that elicit that temptation and kind of get you to, to, to jump ship or chase it or do whatever. The world is not your friend. It's not trying to help you walk in a godly way all the time. Bottom line, we live in a busted world, which we are, by the way, a part of. But this particular discussion is internal. When he says trials, that is an internal struggle. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans chapter 7. He talks about this discussion. He has this discussion where he's basically telling the Romans about the fight he has with himself. He says, look, I want to do the right things. I want to do the things I should. And yet my body, he says, does the opposite. It does the things I know in my head I'm not supposed to do. I do it anyways. You ever have that kind of internal struggle? Right? Maybe you're, maybe you're trying to eat right. You say, I know I shouldn't eat the cookies. I know I shouldn't eat the cookies. But you eat the cookies. Yes. That's, that's an internal struggle. You know what you're supposed to do, you know what the right choice is, and you choose otherwise. Now, Paul's discussion is far more insidious than that. He's not talking about cookies. He's talking about tem sexual temptations is what he's talking about. Those things that draw him away from God, that rob him of his connection with God because he can't get through the struggle. He's fighting with himself and fighting to follow God. Does it ever feel like it's a fight for you to follow God? Ever feel like you're fighting yourself in your, in your desire to do the right things, to follow him, to listen to his precepts, to respond as he would have you respond, to do what he would have you do? I know it is for me at times. I know it is for me at times. I struggle sometimes to be the person he wants me to be. It's hard. It's hard for me sometimes to love somebody who's made me very, very angry. I know he wants me to love them. 
I know he wants me to treat them with courtesy and honesty and respect to try to understand their perspective, to try to see where they're coming from, to try to understand where God is in the middle of it. But I don't know about you, but if I'm really, really mad with somebody, those are not my first thoughts. I'm struggling with myself. It's hard to fight to follow God sometimes. In verse 13, he talks about, he uses this word tempted. He uses this a couple of times over the next few verses. That Greek word shows up in the New Testament 39 times. 39 times in the New Testament it shows up. It shows up a couple of times in a really key place for us, and that's in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, in the beginning of it, we see this scene where Jesus has immediately, after he's been, he has just had this incredible experience where he's been baptized and the Holy Spirit has hovered above him and, and God himself has said to the crowd around him, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he's also said to him, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Aren't those words we would all want to hear from God, right? So he's had this incredible moment. And then in the beginning of Matthew 4, we see he's immediately picked up and taken to a desert. He's taken to a desolate place. That'd be a roller coaster, wouldn't it? Sometimes it feels like that in your walk with God. It feels like you're so close and everything's where it needs to be and, and you're pursuing him and you're chasing him and you're not challenged with the struggle from within. It's all God and you're feeling so excited and empowered and engaged and connected and then the minute later you find yourself not in that place that's exactly what has happened to jesus he has gone from being honestly exalted by god before others encouraged by god in this incredible moment in the very next scene he's in the desert alone by himself and there in the desert he chooses to fast for 40 days and 40 nights He's alone, he's hungry, he's in this desolate place. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a, alone in a desperate place, that's when sin is most tempting. When my heart is troubled or my soul feels empty and I need something to fill it up, that's when it's most tempting. And guess who knows that? The tempter. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, that's what he's called is the tempter. The one who does the tempting. We would call him Satan or the devil. But he knows that. He knows that when you're alone. He knows that when you're without. He knows that when you're emotionally or spiritually down. He knows that's the time when it's time for him to mimic that's the time when it's time for him to try to show you something that looks kind of good and convince you to use your own energy to pursue it. He's trying to tap into this human problem we have. And he says, he does, tries to do the same thing with Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus. You're hungry. You haven't eaten in all these days. You know what? Why don't you just turn these rocks into bread? Why don't you just fix the problem yourself? You can do that. You can fix the problem yourself. Do you know what Jesus says in response? Huh? 
He uses the Bible against him. Yeah, he throws a Bible at him, right? He uses God's word against him. He says, no, 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 no. That is not how this works. Man does not survive on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, you're trying to tempt me with this thing that you think, if I was a normal human, would. Honestly, it would probably satiate my, my need for a minute. It would feel good in the moment. It would get me what I want right now. But at the end of the day, it's going to cost me something much larger. He says, to, he says, the tempter says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are who you say you are. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like if Satan if he says, if you're a child of God, why don't you just? Right? So he's trying to tap into the human nature of Christ. And this is the challenge that you and I face. Jesus is different. We have to remember something. Oftentimes when we see Jesus face things in Scripture, it's not because he has the problem. It's because he needs to teach us how to handle the problem. Does that make sense? He needs to teach us. So we see, if we go back to our text in James, we see in verse 14, he says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. He's tempted to chase this lure. This lure that mimics his basic instincts. How many of you love to go fishing? Two of you. The rest of you are missing out. Fishing is like the greatest thing ever. Chad's looking at me like I have three heads. It's okay. Someday you'll come to the light. It's all right. I love to go fishing. I really enjoy it. But there is a little part of me that feels a little guilty because when I'm fishing, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to lure them in. I'm throwing something out there in the water and reeling it back in that looks like something tasty that they really want swimming through the water. Some of, some of my lures are designed to mimic fish that are hurt and ailing, so they make all kinds of flapping noises to draw attention. That's what they're for. That's exactly what they're for. But even something as innocuous as just a worm floating in the water for a fish to come by and eat, if it's attached to my fishing line, there's probably a, a hook inside waiting. I'm trying to make it look like an easy meal. Is, doesn't, isn't that what sin, sin does to tempt us? It makes it look easy. For the firefly, he's looking for an opportunity to mate. And he says, there she is. Blink, blink, blink. Let's go. The spider says, the it's caught in my net. It's already here, man. Dinner's served. And comes running over, and the assassin bug says, yeah, it is. Just not what you think. That's what Satan is trying to do that draws us away. Draws us away. Our own evil desires draw us away from God. They rob us of our connection to God and our intimacy with God. And they really blind us to being able to see the thing we're supposed to see and to pursue the thing we're supposed to pursue. In traditional Greek thought, there are seven deadly sins, right? There's pride, which mimics value, value as a human being. If you're filled with pride, it's because you're trying to convince yourself you're worth something when deep down inside you really think you're not. 
when the fact is God has told you you are worth something to him. He sent his son to die for you. Lust mimics fulfillment. If I can just feed this urge, I will be fulfilled. Gluttony mimics joy. If I do more of this, I will be happy. And gluttony comes in the form of many, many things. Comes in the form of food, yes. If I keep eating the cookies, I will be happier. I have to think about that one twice. If I keep playing the video games, if any of you are addicts, I will be happier. I will be more fulfilled. If I keep chasing acclamation and accolades and I can get more people to tell me that I'm awesome, if you're somebody who feels like you need somebody to tell you you're awesome all the time, you might be chasing a joy that you cannot find. Sloth, one of the other seven deadly sins, mimics discernment. I can't, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody say, I'm waiting on the right time to go look for a job. I'm waiting on the right time to do my homework. I'm, I'm waiting for the right time to share the gospel. That's not discernment. That's laziness. That's sloth. Wrath mimics justice. If they just get what's coming to them, everything will be made right. That's not justice. That's wrath. Because in almost invariably, whatever's coming to them, whoever them are, is probably worse than whatever was done to us. Envy mimics fairness. If I just had what she had, then life would be fair. There are some other deadly sins, though, that are not listed in the traditional ones that I think also get us. Um, an emotional high mimics goodness. And that's, when an, that's why an addict becomes addicted to the, the substance. It's giving them that emotional high, and they say, it must be good because I feel good, right? It's the same reason that, frankly, people step out on their marriage. They say, I need, I, need, I need to feel loved or I need to feel good. And so if I'm with this person, I feel good for a moment. I feel good about that, right? They're seeking this emotional charge that at the end of the day just leaves them broken and busted even more than when they went after it. It even, it even happens in our faith. Um, it's really easy to want to chase a feeling, if you've ever had, a, ever had the Holy Spirit be present in a powerful way that moves you, right? It blows your mind. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And those are, those are experiences that you want to have again and again and again and again. And will God offer them? I, I, I think he does. But if all you're doing is chasing that feeling, you're going to miss out on God working in so many other ways throughout your life. You're going to miss out on the peace that he offers. You're going to miss out the strength that he offers. You're going to miss out the love that he is and that he embodies and that he offers us. That can happen really quick where you're chasing a feeling and missing out on the remainder of what it means to follow God. 
Sometimes success mimics righteousness. We think if this is working, it must be God-ordained. It must be good. Not necessarily. There's a lot to be won from Satan if he can convince you that something you're doing is good when it's not. And sometimes, temporal security or feeling good and safe here, right here, right now, we tend to we tend to use it as a placebo for eternal safety. We say, if I can just feel safe right now, right? That mimics what eternal safety looks like. And by the way, eternal safety is worth way more than this cheap imitation of now. These are the things that grab us. Satan's greatest victory may be convincing people, sometimes even God's people, that they can chase lures, they can pursue sins, that, that they are pursuing good things when they're not, and that if they do even pursue these things, it doesn't cost them anything. You can do these things and you'll still be okay. But, as James says in verse 15, pursuing these lures has consequences. Because it says, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. It will kill you. It will consume you. There is no controlling of it. There is no metering it out and giving it just enough so that you can get the feeling you're looking for or, or achieve the goal you're trying to achieve. It will get you. It will consume you. So how do we respond to that? How do we deal with that? I think we've beaten that into the ground. Is sin a problem? Okay. Will it destroy us? Yes. Are we easily deceived? Yes. Okay. We're all on the same page. Now, if we stop with that, that would be awfully depressing, wouldn't it? Okay. Because James gives us some ideas on how to handle it, how to begin to deal with it. And we're going to look at that over the next three weeks, really, dealing with it. It's, 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 a, it's not a one-minute or a one-sermon, 30-minute answer. This is how you deal with sin. Thank you, and have a nice day. Wouldn't that be great? It would be, but it's not. So James gives us some answers, but even before we get to James... Matthew, or Jesus gives us some answers in Matthew... When he said, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That bread alone, provision alone. Remember, Jesus is alone. He is by himself. There's no one else for him to turn to. There's no one else for him to look toward. There shouldn't be, except for who? God. But I, I wonder, we have access to God too, right? But how often do we try to fix sins alone? When we're in our most desperate place or when things are really, really bad or when we feel like we cannot possibly recover from this, how often do we just keep it to ourselves and try to fix it alone? Nine times out of ten. I love you, but I think you're lowballing. Eleven times out of ten is probably closer. Because there's a problem here. If I have a sin problem and I tell you, now what? Now you know. And if you know, 
That's more people than I want to know knowing, frankly, right? We don't want people to know that we're broken. We don't want people to know that we're busted. We don't want people to know that we can't, that we're trying to do this and we can't do this and we're struggling and we're on that roller coaster of highs one minute and lows the next. Or maybe you're on a low and you've been on a low for a long time and you're bouncing along the bottom. We don't want people to know those things. Frankly, because it hurts our pride. Which, by the way, was number one in our seven deadly sins list. It hurts our pride. I don't think that's by accident. We try to figure it out all by ourselves, but Jesus does exactly what we should do. He, he doesn't even try to solve it by himself. He immediately calls on God. Immediately. He doesn't say, I'll just figure it out. He immediately calls on God and says, no, 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 God's the resolution here, not you not whatever this cheap fix is. But James, James, in our original scripture today, if we were to look at verses 16 through 18, I'm going to read them again just so that they're refreshed in our minds. It says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word so that truth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James says in verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. Okay, he just solved our problem for us. Don't be deceived. There's your marching orders. Don't be deceived. How easy is that one? Not... Your emotions run hot. If you're, if you're emotional about something or you feel passionate about wanting something really, really bad, I'm going to keep this very, very PG. It's easy to deceive yourself. Greed is easy to deceive yourself that you're, you're chasing something worth it. Gluttony, it's easy to deceive yourself. You need something in the moment. Lust, it's easy to deceive yourself. You have to have this. You have to have this to survive. You have to have this to feel better about yourself. This will heal you. This will fulfill you. This will. It's easy to lie to yourself. We're good at it. So this Photinus bug, right? This lightning bug, it has basic instincts. Same basic instincts human beings have. Mate, live, right? Don't die, make more. Those are some basic human instincts. Basic instincts for almost every animal in the animal kingdom, right? Don't die, make more. The difference between us and the Photinus is that we have something called a brain. We have more than just a bug brain or just what I would call a lizard brain that's just basic responses and reactions we have the ability to think and the ability to discern that's a key word to discern that means to process to evaluate to consider the ups and the downs it means to stop and hit the pause button and recognize that sometimes our own feelings might lie to us our own thoughts might lie to us our own motivations might lie to us now, I don't know about you, 
But when I am motivated to do something, I am confident that is the right thing to do. That I want it for very good reasons. I want such and such a change to happen for very good reasons. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at home. But are my motivations always pure and true and righteous? If I'm honest with myself, probably not. They probably sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, are self selfish in nature. They are broken in nature. They are not about lifting people up. They are not about glorifying God. They are not about growing closer to Him. They're about getting what I want in the moment. So how do we really discern? Well, one, and the one that I've kind of hinted at so far that I think we totally miss on a regular basis is that discernment is actually more effective when there's more than one thought and you're more than one person talking. Meaning, when you're not alone. There's a, a phrase in Matthew chapter 18 that gets misused constantly and it drives me bonkers. It's in Matthew 18, verse 20. It says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, here I am among them. Right? We use that often when we say, oh, if it's a small group of people together, that's okay. We're still, there's two or three of us praying together, that's okay. That's still, God is still present. Can I just tell you something? God is always present. That entire section of scripture, the first, the five verses before it, ending with that one, are a brother and sister in Christ arguing. In fact, it's one brother who has sinned against another brother. And Matthew's advice is to say, if somebody sins against you, if a brother or sister sins against you, you go to them and you try to talk through the issue. If that doesn't resolve it, you grab two or three others and you take them with you to talk through it and solve the issue. Oftentimes, we think, okay, I'm going to take two or three other people with me because they aren't listening to me and they need to hear the two or three other people who are also going to tell them they're wrong. Right? And that may be true. But could it be that also gathering two or three brothers or sisters around you where God is present might be to correct you who thinks you've been sinned against? It might be to give you clarity. We have a tendency to do something called triangling where we try to recruit people that we think are going to take our side. When what we really should be doing is recruiting people who are going to tell us how God sees it. Who are unbiased. Who are not engaged in it. Who aren't going to get mad just because I'm mad. The, the truth is, James will also, in, later in the book of James, in James chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, he will say the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up as if, if he, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And listen to this in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is, a very, pow is very powerful in its effect. It seems that James and Jesus and Matthew all seem to understand that discerning and resolving sins is not a one-person job. 
It's not something we're supposed to do on an island by ourselves. If you've got a sin in your life, it is highly unlikely that if you put yourself in a silo or a bubble or whatever analogy you want to use and say, I'm going to figure this out, I'm going to power it through on my own, it is highly unlikely that you will kill it off on your own. At best, at best, you're probably going to get the roller coaster. Moments of good, followed by moments of garbage, followed by another moment of good, and then another moment of junk. You ever wondered why your sin is on a roller coaster? Why you can't beat the problem that you want to beat, that your head is telling you, yes, God, I need to follow you, not fulfill this emotion. But it keeps coming back to me. I'm having the Paul struggle. Why? Why? Are you trying to do it alone? Are you trying to figure it out by yourself? I've seen people beat their head against a wall for decades trying to solve a sin issue that they just can't get rid of. And they're like, why can't I get rid of it? Because you're flying solo, man. God built his community, his people, his church for a reason so that we would lean into one another. So that we would discern together. So that we could help each other. So that we could set aside the evil sin of pride and say that doesn't matter. What matters is chasing God. What matters is finding fulfillment and wholeness in Him and nowhere else. That's what matters. But at the end of the day, we'd love to really love to like to just figure it out on our own because it would be so much less confrontational. <laughs> That's probably not going to work. The second thing James gets into is Verse 17, it's to trust God's instincts over our own basic instincts. Trust God's instincts. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. It is God who is the giver of all good things. It is God who is the creator of all good things. It is God who is reliable when the world is not and sometimes when I'm not. I was listening to a discussion with John MacArthur this week. He's a pastor, and, 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 and he said, you know, one of the problems that people have with sin is that we are too, we are too earthbound. We are not heavenly bound enough. We are not focused enough and tying ourselves enough to the things of God and the eternity that he provides and that he offers. We live too much for the moment when what we should be chasing is something that will not merely last a moment but will last for all of eternity. Again, sometimes our instincts lie to us but God's instincts never lie. God's instincts are always true. And the question would be, where do you find out what God's instincts are? There's three places. The Word of God, A number one, you find out what His instincts are. Two, discerning with others who are also followers of Christ. It does not help you to discern with somebody that you pick up on the side of the road and go, so what do you think about... Could they be an angel from God? It could be. 
I think I would probably stick with people who outwardly and openly proclaim to follow God and your friends that know you and know you well enough to tell you. Right? The third place you discern the instincts of God is on your knees. We discern the instincts of God when we are able to lay aside our own issues, our own pride, and recognizing that it is our strength that will that our strength will not carry us where we need to go. And I wonder sometimes if we don't gloss over sin that way, we don't get on our knees enough and beg him to help us deal with it. Beg him to break us. Beg him, beg him to change us. Beg him to mold us. Or if we just let it fly under the radar and hope it won't kill us. Newsflash, it will. It will. And finally, the third thing that James hits in verse 18 is to embrace God's grace. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. That is Jesus Christ, by the way. So that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The message has been super serious, right? But the truth is, even if you have sinned this morning five times before you got here, or maybe even while you're sitting here, God's grace can cover it. God's grace can change it. And if you're willing to come to him right now in this moment, don't wait till tomorrow, Right? Don't wait until later. But if you're willing to come to him and ask for his grace to cover you, for his grace to change you, if you're willing to say, I have made the wrong choice and I'm willing to turn the other direction. I'm willing to trust that you will get me where I need to go, that you will keep me from flying to that bug that's going to kill me, that you will keep me from chasing an anglerfish, that you will keep me from whatever this sin or difficulty is in your life that draws you away from God, that robs you of your intimacy with him and your connection to him. His grace is enough. You don't, what I'm saying is you don't need to hold on to guilt. You don't need to hold on to shame. You don't need to hold on to whatever it is that keeps you from being willing to tell anybody else or willing to present it to God or to believe that he can handle it. You just have to come to him and his grace will cover it. Amen? I'm going to pray for us and as I pray, I would love for our worship team to come up. They're going to they're gonna lead us in a few songs to end our day, our gathering time. Father God, uh, we have heard from your word today. We have heard from, or we have been reminded of how difficult it can be to follow you sometimes. How that sometimes we are our own worst enemies. When we lean too much into ourselves and not enough into you. You have given us a great challenge to be your people but you've also given us a great hope you have not simply said change you have said change and I can help you do that
You have said, pursue me and I will help you pursue me. You have said, let me love you and be gracious to you and, and to grant you favor and give you peace. Lord God, we are thankful for your ongoing mercies and grace. We are thankful for the opportunities you give us to come back to you with each and every turn. I pray that as we work through this series, we will remember that. That even as we are convicted of our difficulties and our, our, the way we, where we fall short, that we are also lifted up by you if only we would allow you to do so. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies and your grace. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.